I want to give you today some uh, final thoughts on the Gospel of Mark. And as you know, if you have uh, been here for any length of time, you know that we go through uh, books of the Bible. So the question is, where do we go next? Because this is our last week in the Gospel of, uh, Gospel of Mark, and we've been in Mark for a long time. The next few weeks, we're going to just focus at the uh, Christmas narrative and uh, look at uh, Christ's birth all the way up through Christmas. And then the plan is to go into one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament and uh, look at uh, a minor prophet. And uh, from there, uh, the question is, where does the journey go from uh, there at that point? And uh, there's a possibility of another minor prophet perhaps uh, going into Titus. Uh, Titus has been on my heart, and eventually we want to get into the book of Romans. So that is kind of where we're going, unless, uh, of course, that we're talking years in advance here. So things could change up uh, there, but at least that's the immediate uh, plan. But today we want to look at Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, for the last time. Many months ago, we opened up our Bibles to Isaiah. And we prepared for looking at this uh, gospel by talking about darkness in the land. And how there was a, a great need for a savior. There was a great need for light. People were living in a spiritually desperate time. There was spiritual darkness in the land. And by the way, you can have all sorts of uh, different blessings from God and benefits from God and thanking the Lord for the protection of our nation. But we have come to the point tragically in our nation where we say, Lord, we want your protection. Of course, we're not even praying this. We're not even uh, going to the Lord in prayer, but we are wanting his protection. We are wanting his blessings. We are wanting him to take care of us. Well, at the same time, we're saying we're not going to worship you. And when we get to that point, we are ripe and ready and already are experiencing the judgment of God. When the word of God is rare in the land. When people are comfortable at home, but don't have many thoughts about the worship of Christ, the Almighty One, the King of Glory. Strange and dark times indeed. And of course, these were similar times in Israel as Rome was in charge and it was spiritually dark. And all of a sudden there was the sudden appearance of Christ. And it's interesting that in Mark we go right into Christ's manhood. So it is good for the next few weeks to actually be talking about his birth and what happened when he was a baby because Mark doesn't address that. He goes right into the story of Christ's life and ministry as a full-grown adult. Mark does not address his infancy, and he does not address his childhood. There's a sudden entrance of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go over to Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, we see this suddenness. Mark uh, chapter 1, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So here John Mark simply says, John appeared. Here he is, full grown, John appears. And then if you look down at verse 9, in those days Jesus came. So all of a sudden Jesus appears, you have John the Baptist appears, and then you have Jesus Christ in his ministry. He suddenly appears. He comes from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And of course, we have the, the baptism and the anointing of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. We see this Trinitarian passage where the Father speaks from heaven, the Son is being baptized, and of course the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And there is the anointing of Jesus. He goes out into his ministry, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He then goes right into the wilderness as the Spirit of God drives him into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. 
So after this profound time of ministry by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is immediately driven into the wilderness to be with the wild animals, where he fasts and he prays, and he is tested by Satan. Then he comes out of that, and he immediately goes into his ministry of preaching. Preaches the gospel, the beginning of Mark, Mark chapter 1. If you go over to Mark 1 again, verse 15, you'll see this, what he is preaching. He is preaching the gospel, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And here's what he is proclaiming and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he was a gospel preacher, and we have talked many times about what the gospel is, and it centers on the life and the death, namely the death of Christ on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. But he was a preacher, and he came out to preach, and he came out to teach in verse 38 of chapter 1, and he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. So he preaches the gospel. He's preaching and he is teaching. And of course, then he goes into his miracles. And we saw many of the miracles of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, we get finally to Mark, the 16th chapter. And the gospel ends suddenly. So the gospel ministry of Christ comes in suddenly with his full-grown manhood, and the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ ends suddenly. He comes in suddenly as a full-grown man, and all of a sudden this gospel ends in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, and it ends very suddenly, in suddenly, and leaves or departs suddenly, comes to a final ending or conclusion. In the last verse, we have this of uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb. These are the ladies fleeing from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. End of gospel. So they're told Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And then that ends. The gospel ends. And the question is, is this truly the final verse of Mark? We said in many ways this is a beautiful ending because it shows that this is realistic. This is real. There's no fancy choir with gold glitter. There's no signs dropping down from the top of the hill saying he is risen. This is a very real reaction, but it ends suddenly. So the question then becomes, well, if you look at your Bibles, we have more verses. But you'll notice that verses 9 through 20, and many of our translations are bracketed off. And so the question then becomes, are these part of Mark or are they not part of Mark? Now, what's interesting is that the earliest manuscripts that we have do not contain these verses. In fact, some of the early church fathers seem to show no knowledge of these verses at all. Uh, Clement and Origen show no knowledge of these verses in the text. And so it seems appropriate that we say, well, we're not really sure. Because these verses, uh, the early church fathers, many of them show no knowledge of this. They're not in the earliest manuscripts. And by the way, we're very concerned uh, about the text of Scripture when we read the Scripture. We want to make sure that we're actually reading what the Bible says and not what an editor added later, but it's interesting because Irenaeus and Tatian both show knowledge of these verses in the second century. 
So evidently these verses were written very early. If Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies, book number three, actually quotes from these verses. And there are scholars on both sides. Some scholars say, well, we don't have the verses in the earliest manuscripts. And there are certain church fathers that show no knowledge of these verses, and therefore we should not include them. And there are other people who say, well, actually these verses are included in the vast majority of the transcripts, even though they're not the earliest. And there are men like Irenaeus who show some knowledge of them and even quote from them. So the question is, what do we do? And it seems that the appropriate answer is to say, leave them exactly where they are. So we don't come down dogmatically and say that these verses are definitely a part of the original canon. The writing of this, uh, these last verses, is different in grammar, different in style than the other verses and other chapters that were written at the pen of John Mark. But the danger is when we get into style and we get into grammar, there have been uh, different scholars who have gone into other books and said, well, this verse doesn't really sound like Paul, and he uses a word that he doesn't normally use, so if he uses that particular word, then it doesn't sound like him. Maybe we need to actually rip that out of the Bible too. And so we are treading in deep water here if we begin to think, well, this is an easy, an easy thing to fix. It's not. So we come to this and we say we're not 100% sure if these verses were uh, a part of the original. But one thing we do see is that they should be left where they are at because they have been there for so long. And they express great doctrine. In fact, some of these uh, doctrines that uh, we are going to go through here are precious to the church and are testified to in other portions of the scripture. So there's nothing in this passage of Scripture that we'd say, well, that doesn't match or that doesn't go with the rest of Scripture or, or perhaps it's contradictory. There's nothing in these verses that is contradictory. And so we have verses 9 through 20, which is the long ending, viewed as the long ending, which has been rightly left in our Bibles. And so if you go in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, we're going to look at these verses and then conclude with them. Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now this seems a little strange that if Mark was writing this, all of a sudden he would say it at this moment, but we know that this is exactly true. We have seen this in uh, Luke chapter 8. Now there is some teaching about Mary Magdalene. Perhaps you've even uh, seen a movie or have heard people talking about this, that she was married to Jesus Christ secretly. And there's other people that say she was actually a prostitute, that she was the woman of sin in the gospel of Luke. We have nothing in the scripture that tells us that. So let's be very clear here. There's nothing in the scripture. There is nothing in the Bible that tells us that she was a prostitute. We know for a fact that the teachings that she was married to Jesus Christ are spurious. They are not true whatsoever. We do know that she dealt with the dominion of darkness and had committed wicked deeds because she was filled with demons. We don't know if she was a prostitute. In fact, this has come down through the church. Different stories have been made up. Different writings have been made up about her. But we do know this about her, that she was delivered from demons, verse 10 of Mark chapter 16. And she went out and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. So the first person that Jesus shows up to in his resurrection was Mary, Mary Magdalene, this lady that he had delivered. 
Very interesting. The testimony of women was seen as uh, lower than the dirt, next to nothing. And here Jesus, Jesus chooses to reveal himself and to show himself, not first to his apostles. He doesn't go first to the religious leaders and say, hey, guys, uh, I have uh, been raised from the dead. Take a look at me now. He doesn't do that. The first person that he appears to is Mary. And Mary has been uh, changed from the inside out. Everything about her was uh, a heart of surrender. She loved the Lord. She was there to put spices on his body. She was there to honor him. When we come to the Lord, we owe him a debt of gratitude that we can never pay and we should never try to pay back for we can never do it. But when the Lord touches us, he touches us deeply. He changes our hearts. He comes to us and he speaks the gospel to us, not in ways that go over our heads. So we're just sitting there listening to some message by Jesus and we're thinking, well, we don't get this. This is some philosopher. This stuff is way over our head. No, we as common people are listening to Jesus, dealing with all sorts of different sins. And by the way, even the most righteous person, at least in the world's eyes, the person who looks like they have everything together, the person who uh, never seems like they do anything wrong, the Bible is very clear that all have sinned. The greatest sin is pride, is saying, I don't need you, Lord. You can, you can go your way, God, and I'll go mine. But when God touches us, he puts his um, kind and loving finger right on the sins of our life. And he doesn't just say, I love you and I accept you for the way that you are. And you can just kind of go on and continue in your life of sin and and, and you can just have a free certificate to heaven, but that's not how it works. The Lord comes to us. Mary Magdalene's greatest need was the fact that she was filled with devils, fallen angels, spirits that were dark and that were ruling and controlling her. And Jesus didn't just come along and pat her on the head and say, there, there, Mary, I'm here for you. I love you just the way you are. Now just go out. Out, out and do whatever you want to do in your life, that's fine. No, no, he comes to us and he knows how to deal with this, the things in our lives that he knows that we're enslaved to. The things that we can never set ourselves free from. We might try. person says, I'm going to deal with this until I'm dead. I've been struggling with this for year after year after year. The person might not even be demon-possessed, not everybody who doesn't know Christ. In fact, the vast, vast majority of people who don't know Christ are not possessed by the devil. But everybody's dealing with sin. And so Jesus comes along and he sees her greatest need. What is, what is her greatest need? Her greatest need is to be delivered from darkness, to be delivered from evil. That's her greatest need. What does he do with the woman at the well? Does he just say, listen, people just need to learn to accept you for who you are and you're a woman and woman power to you? No, no, no. He says, hey, you've been married five times and the man you're living with is not even your husband. He puts his finger right on it. How about Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Zacchaeus, this man who's taking money from all sorts of people. Does Jesus just say to him, listen, you can continue to defraud people and rip them off and that's okay and just go on in your life as long as you know that you're loved by me. No, no, that's not what he does. He comes to us in our, in our sin and with his gentleness and with his kindness, he comes and he speaks words of life into us. Words that we never thought that we were going to hear. He speaks to us and he sets us free. And oh, how we need miracles. We need miracles. This church needs miracles. Maybe you're, maybe you're tired of saying, there's a God out there, but I don't see him working. Where's he at? What's he doing? 
See, she wasn't just she wasn't just thankful. Zacchaeus wasn't just thankful. And we could go through person after person that Jesus set free. He sets them free over and over and over again in their life. But he does it by saying this is the issue. He uproots the issue in their life and he breathes into them new life, giving them a new start. This is uh, this is the power of God. The Lord changes us from the inside out. And so here she is, the first witness. And he says, go back and tell everybody. Go back and tell the disciples that I am alive. So Mark tells us about Mary Magdalene. Then it says in verse 12, he not only appeared to her, verses 12 and 13. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. These are the two we know from Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. If you flip over there, let's read this chunk of scripture together. Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appears here to two gentlemen on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24. Verse 15, and we're going to read a long passage here all the way through verse 31, while they were talking and discussing, so they are walking away from Jerusalem, Jesus himself, this is after he has been raised from the dead, drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Isn't that amazing? They're walking, they're dejected and sad. Jesus Christ has been crucified on the cross. They're sad over this. And as they're walking along, Jesus Christ comes up next to them on this walk. He asks them what's going on, verse 19. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, that is the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So Jesus first appears to Mary Magdalene. The scripture tells us here in Mark, and also in Luke chapter 24, that he also appears to these two individuals. And they're all grieving over the death of Jesus. And he sits down with them, and he opens the Bible. Now, of course, they didn't have Matthew through Revelation. They did not have the New Testament at this time, but they had the Old Testament. And he said, I'm going to show you, beginning with Moses, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, first five books. And he says, I'm going to show you. So he's taking them to different passages. And wouldn't it be wonderful to know exactly what passages he was taking them to? But he could take them to Genesis and he says, see here, guys, this in Genesis, this is about me. 
Maybe you didn't know this. Maybe you thought the New Testament was just about Jesus and the Old Testament was just an old book about the history of Israel. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says this is why we have the whole canon, all 66 books in our hand, because the whole Bible, it's a whole book. All 66 books are about Jesus. Every book. You can go to every book, not just certain passages that seem to really be like and about him, but you can go to every book of the Old Testament and you can see Jesus Christ clearly in the pages of that book. So he takes them to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus is opening their minds. He's expositing the texts of Scripture. What we hold in our hands is the Word of God. This comes from God and has come through men. And as we're reading it and as we're listening to it, we're actually hearing the very voice of God. So he's taking them through all these different passages and he's saying, hey guys, remember when you thought this was about Abraham and Isaac? Well, it was about Abraham and Isaac, but it was about a lot more than just Abraham and Isaac. It was about me. And then he takes them to the prophets and he shows them in all the Old Testament pages how the Old Testament is a book about Jesus. Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing is about one person, and that person is, you can say it out loud, that person is Jesus. The whole book, let's say it again, the whole book is about Jesus. So it isn't God is really mad and stingy in the Old Testament, and all of a sudden in the New Testament, finally we get Jesus Christ full of love and mercy. No, no. The whole thing is about the triune God and how he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save sinners. And so he's showing them, hey, guys, these things had to happen. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't uh, something simply of chance where I just happened to die on the cross and we don't know. Let me show you in the scriptures why I had to suffer, why the Messiah had to die. Why did he have to die on the cross? And he's explaining it to them. And they're saying, we've read the Bible over and over again. We've seen all these different pages of scripture, but we never saw it like this before. Have you ever had that happen? Where he said, I've read that passage over and over again. I've heard that passage taught before. I've even read it with my own eyes. But I had no clue that that's what this was about. This is why Jesus was a master expositor. He was a master teacher. So as he's teaching them, their eyes are being opened. They're going, wow, we didn't realize that. That's what this is all about. And all of a sudden, as they finally get it, their eyes are opened. As he's breaking bread with them, they get it. And in a moment of time, he vanishes from their sight. So here he is. He's appearing to Jesus. Uh, Jesus is appearing to the, the disciples here, two of his followers. He has appeared to Mary Magdalene. But Mark tells us something else if you go back to Mark chapter 16. So he appears to them. And then he appears to his disciples, according to Mark 16. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. Now, we know that Jesus said, just so we're clear, he said, go to Galilee, and that's where I will meet you. And he rebuked them for their unbelief. And there are scholars that say, well, Jesus never rebukes them in this way and uses this kind of terminology. Therefore, it could not be a part of the original. But we do know that Jesus did rebuke them for unbelief, didn't he? And so he comes here in Mark chapter 16. He rebukes them for their unbelief and hardness of heart uh, because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. So there's people coming back on. We saw him. This is real. And this is so realistic because it's not just everybody instantly believes that Christ is risen. There are people going, no way. There's no way. People don't rise from the dead. And people are going, but we saw him. We saw angels and Mary's testifying, and I saw the Lord. And then these two guys are testifying. I, I saw the Lord. We saw the Lord. We broke bread with him, and he vanished. And again, there's no trumpets playing. It's just people are thinking about this. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ comes and he appears to his disciples. And he said to them, verse 15, this is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole 
or to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Now some take this and say, well, that means Jesus said you have to be baptized to be saved. That's not what he's saying. Say if you believe, you're going to be baptized. And by the way, all believers who are uh, repentant of their sins and have come to a place of faith in Christ should be obedient to the mandate to be baptized. So a person says, I received Christ, just like the thief on the cross, he was not instantly baptized. He didn't have the opportunity or the chance to be baptized. He was instantly saved. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. But the truly believing person will believe and will obey and will be baptized. It's a public indicator. So he says, whoever believes and will be baptized will be saved. And whoever does not believe, notice he just says believe there. So whoever does not believe will be condemned. So Jesus is saying, here's here's the mission, guys. The mission is to go into all the world and tell people about Jesus. To have conversations with people. Not just about, hey, come to church. Oh, that's a great question to ask somebody. Would you like to come to church with me? It's a wonderful question. We should be asking people, would you come to church? But it goes much further than that, and it goes much deeper than that. It's talking with people and saying, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm, I'm a Christian. And there are people who think, well, I can't share Jesus. I haven't, I haven't read all the books of the Bible. I don't have a degree in this or that. And I wasn't raised in the church. And I don't even understand. What if they ask me questions? I mean, they might ask me questions. I have no clue how to answer. And Jesus tells his disciples right after he has been raised from the dead. He doesn't say, wait till you go to Bible college for a few years. He doesn't say, wait until you sit down and you understand seven, seven specific verses or until you take a class. This is why the early church would pray for boldness. Oh, God, help us to be bold. And really, the truth is, oftentimes, it's just a matter of us coming out of our cowardice, cowardness, and cowardice and our fear and simply saying, you know what? I'm going to share the Lord with somebody. Listen, people all around us, this is the mandate not only for these apostles, for these disciples, but it's also the mandate for every believer that we're sharing the gospel with people. That we say we have been saved, we have come to an understanding. We've talked over and over again about repenting and believing. We've come to that place in our life. And we understand that Jesus Christ is alive. So now it's up to us to tell all those around us, people who are dying and going to hell, people at convenience stores and people at supermarkets and people that we work with and people in our family, people that we come across, having a passion to simply step forward and say, Lord, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to articulate this message the way I should, but Lord, I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to believe that I simply need to tell people that all have sinned and that because of our breaking of the law of God that everybody deserves hell. And that that's the wages for sin. It's death. And death is not just physical, but it's everlasting death separated from God. And that there's nothing that we can do in order to save ourselves. We can try to save ourselves. We can even sin by ignoring God. And by saying, well, God, you go do your thing and I'll do my thing. That's idolatry. We make idolatry. We make idols of money and sex and all sorts of different things in our life. The wages of sin is death. But then we tell the person that Jesus Christ has come and that he has lived the life that we could never live and that he died on a cross to take the punishment for our sins that we could never take, that he lived the perfect life, that he died in our place as a perfect substitute for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again. Today he's alive and whoever will repent and believe in him will have everlasting life. And if we simply get that message out, listen, God will take care of the work. Sometimes they think, well, I don't know how powerful this is going to be, but you might actually be telling a person this truth, these verses from this Bible. And they might be sitting there and you're just going through and all of a sudden they have tears in their eyes as they're thinking, that, that applies to me. 
I've told you this before, but one uh, illustration that sticks out in my mind is a pastor who had gone, he was not a pastor at the time, but when he was younger, had traveled around uh, playing basketball in a basketball ministry. And afterwards, after playing basketball games, they would share the gospel with those who are watching. And he said he was, um, he finally got done playing basketball. They'd share the gospel and he was out in the hall somewhere just sitting there. And he was exhausted and he was worn out from the game. And a kid came up to him, began to talk to him, and began to ask him about the Lord. And he said he wasn't really into it and he didn't even really feel like sharing the gospel with him. But he kind of went through the whole thing about our sin and our need for a Savior and so on in Christ. And he said as he was sharing this, even though he didn't feel all empowered and there were no angels right there in front of him, there was no vision of angels or anything like that. There was no pulpit and there was no crowd. It was just him and this kid talking. This kid was listening and soaking it all in. And to his utter amazement, at the end of talking, he was so sincere. This kid was so sincere. He said, I want that. I want that. Listen, the words that we say, we might be thinking, no, oh, it's not going to make any effect. Maybe there's somebody in our heart we've been saying, man, I want to share the gospel with that person. I know I need to. I need to take that step of faith and come out of my comfort zone and simply share with them. And the Lord spreads his word and the church of Jesus Christ is built, not simply as a preacher preaches sermons, but as the church, that is the people of God, obey the great commission and go into all the world. You have been commissioned. Every person in this church has been commissioned not by a pastor and not by a pope, not by a bishop. Every person in this church has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a missionary. And you might not be a missionary in Africa. You might be a, a missionary in Taylor or in Old Forge or in Larksville or in Wilkes-Barre or in Harrisburg. But wherever we go, we're to take this uh, gospel message with us and know the joy of seeing somebody come to Christ as a result of us being used by the Lord to speak into their lives. Now notice with me, we close with this. Mark 16, verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe. <laughs> now, by the way, a lot, a lot of those people who don't uh, like uh, these verses are those who don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Big surprise. But Jesus and the early church taught, listen, this has been in the, in the Bible, this long ending of Mark has been in the Bible for close to 2,000 years, and it's teaching good doctrine here. And evidently, the early church believed this and taught this as doctrine, and it has uh, stayed with us for that long. It is good doctrine. Notice what it says here. These are the signs that are going to accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Now, notice he's not just talking here to the apostles. This is why this text is so precious. It's not just to the 11 here or those who later would become uh, pillars in the church. It's to all those who believe. In fact, let's go back here and, and look at this so that we're very clear here. Verse 17, and these signs will accompany those who what? Who believe. He doesn't say these signs will accompany just you guys. He says these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. You mean all believers have the authority to cast out demons? Absolutely. And maybe we need some more of that. Maybe you're in a situation where you're sensing wickedness and you're sensing demonic presence. And maybe it's somebody who's actually filled with a demon or demons or perhaps you've walked into a situation that you know is demonic and is not right. There's a darkness about it. And as the a believer, you have the authority to say, in the name of Jesus, leave. In the name of Jesus, get out of here. Maybe it's something in your own home, and you're saying, well, I just sense that the enemy has been attacking lately. Maybe it's a situation at work, 
And you're going, there's something, there's something to this situation that's beyond just the regular, regular stuff of life. This isn't just, well, bad things happen to even good people. No, no. You're sensing there's something in this situation that is demonic. And you say to yourself, well, who has the authority? Well, it's good to call the pastors, good to call elders, good to call deacons, all that. But according to what this is saying, this, pre this precious text that has been in our Bibles for all these years, this is saying it has that every believer has the right. Every believer has the authority to say in the name of Jesus, flee. In the name of Jesus, flee. And perhaps we need to see some more signs because the Bible says that signs will accompany those who believe. This isn't just saying, well, we kind of believe this stuff, but we really never see any power. We never see the working out of this stuff. No, this is, this is somebody saying, in the name of Jesus, not having this ongoing conversation with the devil, in the name of Jesus, get out. And uh, perhaps you right now are thinking of a situation, you need to take authority over it in the name of Jesus. You need to say these signs will follow those who believe in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I take authority over this, not in my own power, but in the strength of Christ. I take authority over this thing in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, this thing, get out. Hardness of heart, get out. Demonic influence, in the name of Jesus, get out. Spirit of pornography, in the name of Jesus, get out. And so you begin to deal with things in power. It's not just raising your voice and shouting, but it's coming from something that is down deep within. It's a new nature that has been given by the Holy Spirit. And so we're supernatural people. We're people walking about with genuine authority, the authority of the Holy Spirit to, to, to take authority over the wicked one in Jesus Christ's name. Listen, this is, this is for people in this church right now. And there are people right now, you're thinking of things. You're thinking of things that you're going, this is, this is something that I need to do in the name of Jesus. This is what it says here. Now, notice what else it says. They will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. And the Bible tells us that that's exactly what happened in the early church. And that's what continues to happen throughout the church. So we pray over somebody to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, at different times, the Lord gives the gift of tongues. And I wouldn't doubt if there's a lot more people in this church that need to speak in tongues. So we get to the place where we say, Jesus said, according to this, they will cast out demons, and they will speak in tongues. So if, if this is the testimony of Scripture, and by the way, if you're wondering, which way does Jacob lean in this whole conversation? If you fall on the other side of the conversation, that's fine. Should we include this or not include 9 through 20? I fall on the side of include it. Include it. So we have, we have they, will, they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands. Now we know this happened, by the way, in um, Acts 28. Let me show this to you real quick. Let's go to Acts 28. Acts chapter 28. And by the way, while you're, while you're going there, it wasn't too long ago that there was a, um, a so-called pastor who was playing with snakes uh, in a church and got bit and died. And so there are people saying, well, listen, you get out in the south some places or perhaps even up here or who knows, and you find a, a church and they bring out the snakes and they use this text in um, Mark 16 to, uh, to charm snakes. And then they say, well, Jesus said we're not going to get bit. Listen, that is not what this verse is talking about. So if we ever bring a snake in here, immediately leave, 
renounce this church, renounce the doctrine, renounce the pastor, and flee for your lives. That is not what this is teaching. That, well, we have a good English word for that. It's called being nuts. That's crazy. So Jesus is not saying get real weird and kooky. Now, I have never personally been in a, in a service where they have a snake brought out, but I've been in plenty of kooky services. That's not what this is talking about. What this is saying is there are occasions. You don't play with snakes. But there are occasions where you might come into a dangerous situation in your life, physically dangerous, including in contact with deadly animals like a snake. And there are times where when you come into contact with that snake or that deadly animal, that the Lord will protect you. That's what this is saying. Amen? And aren't we thankful for that? That there are times, listen, there are times we walk right into deadly situations, physically deadly situations because we're Christians. Sometimes we even do it on purpose. We know it might be dangerous. We, we don't have a death wish, but we might walk into a situation we know is rather dangerous. And we say we're doing it for the sake of the gospel. Now notice what happens in um, Acts 28. When Paul, that's the uh, Apostle Paul, when he had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat. That's a snake. So a viper comes out and fastened onto his hand. Now this is, this is just great. Verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. <laughs> so that, that's their conclusion. Paul gets bit with a viper. The thing's hanging on his hand, and they're all sitting there going, he must have done something really bad to get this. He must, he must have been a murderer. Okay, that's verse 4. Though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. That's their conclusion. Somebody gets bit like this, well, that's what they, that's what they get. It was coming to them because, uh, be, because they must have done something very bad, like kill somebody. Verse 5. However, he uh, shook off the creature into the fire, and suffered no harm. So Paul shakes the snake off into the fire, kills the snake. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. <laughs> How great is that? He must be a murderer. Okay, he shakes the thing off. Oh, he's a god. And that was the... That's their conclusion. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 16. He's saying there's going to be things that you could possibly do, and don't worry, I'm going to protect you. You might end up messing with a snake, or you might end up drinking some kind of deadly poison. Go with me back to Mark chapter 16. Deadly poison, and it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. That's why we believe in the laying on of hands. By the way, Mark chapter 6, verse 5, Mark 7, 32, Luke 4, 40, all talk about Jesus laying his hands on the sick. And they will recover. Verse uh, 19, so the Lord Jesus, after he had spoke spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is a position here. Keener says it's Jesus Jesus reigns as God's agent. This doesn't mean Jesus is up in heaven on a wooden chair somewhere. This is the fact that he has the right to rule. He's the ruling agent of God. This is a term of supremacy. Verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So this is the testimony of Scripture. Jesus says, you're going to go out, you're going to cast out devils, demons. You're going to drink poison and not be harmed. You're going to mess with snakes, not on purpose, not be killed. You're going to lay your hands on the sick. This is why we lay our hands on people. But it's not just the pastor, it's you. So 
little one can crawl up on mommy's lap while she's sick and put their little chubby hands on mommy's face and pray and say, Lord, help mommy to feel better. And that person can be healed because of the prayer of a little one who knows Jesus. You're, you're, you're at home and there's somebody sick in your family. You can go over and you can lay your hands on them and say, Oh Lord, in Jesus' name, I ask you that this person would not only get rest and strength, but Lord, would you heal their body? Would you heal them? I ask this in Jesus' name. You have the authority to do that. And so Jesus says, these are the things that are going to be done by those who believe. These are the signs that are going to happen. It will take place. It's supernatural. So Jesus dies. He's buried. He rises again. And now he's in heaven. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to us to indwell us and to empower us so that we might go out into a world and reach all those who don't know him for the sake of of the gospel. Would you stand with me as we close? Jesus, we thank you for your power and your your uh, might in our own lives. Lord, we thank you that you have given the Holy Spirit to all who believe, to all who believe indiscriminately. You've given it to all. The Holy Spirit, he is at work in us. That power that you have given to us comes from him, the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we just say to you, as, as the third person of the Trinity, you're welcome in this church. Lord, I pray that you would pour out, Holy Spirit, pour out sovereignly gifts of tongues, gifts of healing. Lord Jesus, authority over demons, we pray, in this church. Lord, we pray that we would be people of the supernatural, that you would release us. And God, I pray if there are situations that believers, perhaps even in this church, need to take authority over, that that would happen and that they would be empowered to do so. I want to ask you if you're just sensing, not that you're demon-possessed or you know somebody is, but you're just sensing the enemy's been attacking in your life or your family's life in a particular way, and you know it's not coming just from the flesh, it's coming from the enemy, and, and you say, let's, let's pray over that this morning, that that thing would go in Jesus' name. Would you raise your hand? Say, that's me. The sense the enemy is at work in some way, in some way, in some way. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we ask you that that thing, whatever that is, over every person that's raised their hand, over every family, that that would go in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Satan, we rebuke you in Jesus' name. We pray you bring freedom. Freedom, Lord. Just like Mary Magdalene. Freedom, we pray. Freedom in the Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. And amen.